0: Chapter 5 Cognitive Ease Whenever you are conscious, and perhaps even when you are not, multiple computations are going on in your brain, which maintain and update current answers to some key questions. Is anything new going on? Is there a threat? Are things going well? Should my attention be redirected? Is more effort needed for this task? You can think of a cockpit with a set of dials that indicate the current values of each of these essential variables. The assessments are carried out automatically by System 1, and their main function is to determine whether extra effort is required from System 2. One of the dials measures cognitive ease, and its range is between easy and strained. Easy is a sign that things are going well. No threats, no major news, no need to redirect attention or mobilize effort. Strained indicates that a problem exists, which will require increased mobilization of System 2. Conversely, you experience cognitive strain. Cognitive strain is affected by both the current level of effort and the presence of unmet demands. The surprise is that a single dial of cognitive ease is connected to a large network of diverse inputs and outputs. Figure 5 on the PDF tells the story. The figure suggests that a sentence that is printed in a clear font or has been repeated or has been primed will be fluently processed with cognitive ease. Hearing a speaker when you are in a good mood or even when you have a pencil stuck crosswise in your mouth to make you smile, also induces cognitive ease. Conversely, you experience cognitive strain when you read instructions in a poor font, or in faint colors, or worded in complicated language, or when you are in a bad mood, and even when you frown. The various causes of ease or strain have interchangeable effects. When you are in a state of cognitive ease, you are probably in a good mood, like what you see, believe what you hear, trust your intuitions, and feel that the current situation is comfortably familiar. You are also likely to be relatively casual and superficial in your thinking. When you feel strained, you are more likely to be vigilant and suspicious, invest more effort in what you are doing, feel less comfortable, and make fewer errors, but you also are less intuitive and less creative than usual. Illusions of Remembering The word illusion brings visual illusions to mind, because we are all familiar with pictures that mislead. But vision is not the only domain of illusions. Memory is also susceptible to them, as is thinking more generally. David Stenbill, Monica bigowski Shanna Tyranna I just made up these names. If you encounter any of them within the next few minutes, you are likely to remember where you saw them. You know, and will know for a while, that these are not the names of minor celebrities— but suppose that a few days from now you are shown a long list of names, including some minor celebrities and new names of people you have never heard of. Your task will be to check every name of a celebrity in the list. There is a substantial probability that you will identify David Stenbill as a well-known person, although you will not, of course, know whether you encountered his name in the context of movies sports, or politics. Larry Jacoby, the psychologist who first demonstrated this memory illusion in the laboratory, titled his article, Becoming Famous Overnight. How does this happen? Start by asking yourself how you know whether or not someone is famous. In some cases, truly famous people, or of celebrities in an area you follow, You have a mental file with rich information about a person. Think Albert Einstein, Bono, Hillary Clinton. But you will have no file of information about David Stenbill if you encounter his name in a few days. All you will have is a sense of familiarity. You have seen this name somewhere. Jacoby nicely stated the problem. The experience of familiarity has a simple but powerful quality of pastness that seems to indicate that it is a direct reflection of prior experience. This quality of pastness is an illusion. The truth is, as Jacobi and many followers have shown, that the name David Stenbill will look familiar when you see it because you will see it more clearly words that you have seen before become easier to see again. You can identify them better than other words when they are shown very briefly or masked by noise, and you will be quicker by a few hundredths of a second to read them than to read other words. In short, you experience greater cognitive ease in perceiving a word you have seen earlier, and it is this sense of ease that gives you the impression of familiarity. Figure 5 on the PDF suggests a way to test this. Choose a completely new word, make it easier to see, and it will be more likely to have the quality of pastness. Indeed, A new word is more likely to be recognized as familiar if it is unconsciously primed by showing it for a few milliseconds just before the test, or if it is shown in sharper contrast than some other words in the list. The link also operates in the other direction. Imagine you are shown a list of words that are more or less out of focus. Some of the words are severely blurred, others less so, and your task is to identify the words that are shown more clearly. A word that you have seen recently will appear to be clearer than unfamiliar words. As figure 5 on the PDF indicates, the various ways of inducing cognitive ease or strain are interchangeable. You may not know precisely what it is that makes things cognitively easy or strained. This is how the illusion of familiarity comes about. Illusions of Truth New York is a large city in the United States. The moon revolves around the earth. A chicken has four legs. In all these cases, you quickly retrieved a great deal of related information, almost all pointing one way or another. You knew soon after reading them that the first two statements are true and the last one is false. Note, however, that the statement, a chicken has three legs, is more obviously false than a chicken has four legs. Your associative machinery slows the judgment of the latter sentence by delivering the fact that many animals have four legs, and perhaps also that supermarkets often sell chicken legs in packages of four. System 2 was involved in sifting that information, perhaps raising the issue of whether the question about New York was too easy, or checking the meaning of revolves. Think of the last time you took a driving test. Is it true that you need a special license to drive a vehicle that weighs more than three tons? Perhaps you studied seriously and can remember the side of the page on which the answer appeared, as well as the logic behind it. This is certainly not how I passed driving tests when I moved to a new state. My practice was to read the booklet of rules quickly once and hope for the best. I knew some of the answers from the experience of driving for a long time, but there were questions where no good answer came to mind, where all I had to go by was cognitive ease. If the answer felt familiar, I assumed that it was probably true. If it looked new, or improbably extreme, I rejected it. The impression of familiarity is produced by System 1, and System 2 relies on that impression for a true or false judgment. The lesson of Figure 5 is that predictable illusions inevitably occur if a judgment is based on an impression of cognitive ease or strain. Anything that makes it easier for the associative machine to run smoothly will also bias beliefs. A reliable way to make people believe in falsehoods is frequent repetition, because familiarity is not easily distinguished from truth. Authoritarian institutions and marketers have always known this fact. But it was psychologists who discovered that you do not have to repeat the entire statement of a fact or idea to make it appear true. People who were repeatedly exposed to the phrase, the body temperature of a chicken, were more likely to accept as true the statement that the body temperature of a chicken is 144 degrees, or any other arbitrary number. The familiarity of one phrase in the statement sufficed to make the whole statement feel familiar and therefore true. If you cannot remember the source of a statement and have no way to relate it to other things you know, you have no option but to go with the sense of cognitive ease. How to Write a Persuasive Message Suppose you must write a message that you want the recipients to believe. Of course, your message will be true, but that is not necessarily enough for people to believe that it is true. It is entirely legitimate for you to enlist cognitive ease to work in your favor, and studies of truth illusions provide specific suggestions that may help you achieve this goal. The general principle is that anything you can do to reduce cognitive strain will help. So you should first maximize legibility. Compare these two statements, the first in bold type, the second in regular type. Adolf Hitler was born in 1892. Adolf Hitler was born in 1887. Both are false. Hitler was born in 1889, but experiments have shown that the first is more likely to be believed. More advice. If your message is to be printed, use high-quality paper to maximize the contrast between characters and their background. If you use color, you are more likely to be believed if your text is printed in bright blue or red than in middling shades of green, yellow, or pale blue. If you care about being thought credible and intelligent, do not use complex language where simpler language will do. My Princeton colleague, Danny Oppenheimer, refuted a myth prevalent among undergraduates about the vocabulary that professors find most impressive. In an article titled Consequences of Erudite Vernacular Utilized Irrespective of Necessity, Problems with Using Long Words Needlessly, He showed that couching familiar ideas in pretentious language is taken as a sign of poor intelligence and low credibility. In addition to making your message simple, try to make it memorable. Put your ideas in verse if you can. They will be more likely to be taken as truth. Participants in a much-cited experiment read dozens of unfamiliar aphorisms such as Woes unite foes. Little strokes will tumble great oaks. A fault confessed is half redressed. Other students read some of the same proverbs transformed into non-rhyming versions. Woes unite enemies. Little strokes will tumble great trees. A fault admitted is half redressed the aphorisms were judged more insightful when they rhymed than when they did not. Finally, if you quote a source, choose one with a name that is easy to pronounce. Participants in an experiment were asked to evaluate the prospects of fictitious Turkish companies on the basis of reports from two brokerage firms. For each stock, one of the reports came from an easily pronounced name for example, Artan, and the other report came from a firm with an unfortunate name, for example, Tehut. The reports sometimes disagreed. The best procedure for the observers would have been to average the two reports, but this is not what they did. They gave much more weight to the report from Artan than to the report from Tehut. Remember that System 2 is lazy, and that mental effort is aversive. If possible, the recipients of your message want to stay away from anything that reminds them of effort, including a source with a complicated name. All this is very good advice, but we should not get carried away. High-quality paper, bright colors, and rhyming or simple language will not be much help if your message is obviously nonsensical, or if it contradicts facts. That your audience knows to be true. The psychologists who do these experiments do not believe that people are stupid or infinitely gullible. What psychologists do believe is that all of us live much of our life guided by the impressions of system one, and we often do not know the source of these impressions. How do you know that a statement is true? If it is strongly linked by logic, or association to other beliefs or preferences you hold, or comes from a source you trust and like, you will feel a sense of cognitive ease. The trouble is that there may be other causes for your feeling of ease, including the quality of the font and the appealing rhythm of the prose, and you have no simple way of tracing your feelings to their source. This is the message of Figure 5. The sense of ease or strain has multiple causes, and it is difficult to tease them apart. Difficult, but not impossible. People can overcome some of the superficial factors that produce illusions of truth when strongly motivated to do so. On most occasions, however, the lazy System 2 will adopt the suggestions of System 1 and march on. STRAIN AND EFFORT The symmetry of many associative connections was a dominant theme in the discussion of associative coherence. As we saw earlier, people who are made to smile or frown by sticking a pencil in their mouth or holding a ball between their furrowed brows are prone to experience the emotions that frowning and smiling normally express the same self-reinforcing reciprocity is found in studies of cognitive ease. On the one hand, cognitive strain is experienced when the effortful operations of System 2 are engaged. On the other hand, the experience of cognitive strain, whatever its source, tends to mobilize System 2 shifting people's approach to problems from a casual, intuitive mode to a more engaged and analytic mode. The bat-and-ball problem was mentioned earlier as a test of people's tendency to answer questions with the first idea that comes to their mind, without checking it. Shane Frederick's cognitive reflection test consists of the bat-and-ball problem and two others— all chosen because they evoke an immediate intuitive answer that is incorrect. The other two items in the CRT are, If it takes five machines five minutes to make five widgets, how long would it take one hundred machines to make one hundred widgets? One hundred minutes or five minutes? In a lake, there is a patch of lily pads. Every day the patch doubles in size if it takes 48 days for the patch to cover the entire lake, how long would it take for the patch to cover half of the lake? 24 days or 47 days? The correct answers to both problems are 5 and 47. The experimenters recruited 40 Princeton students to take the CRT. Half of them saw the puzzles in a small font in washed-out gray print. The puzzles were legible, but the font-induced cognitive strain. The results tell a clear story. Ninety percent of the students who saw the CRT in normal font made at least one mistake in the test, but the proportion dropped to thirty-five percent when the font was barely legible. You heard this correctly. Performance was better with the bad font. Cognitive strain, whatever its source, mobilizes System 2, which is more likely to reject the intuitive answer suggested by System 1. The Pleasure of Cognitive Ease An article titled, Mind at Ease Puts a Smile on the Face, describes an experiment in which participants were briefly shown pictures of objects. Some of these pictures were made easier to recognize by showing the outline of the object just before the complete image was shown, so briefly that the contours were never noticed. Emotional reactions were measured by recording electrical impulses from facial muscles, registering changes of expression that are too slight and too brief, to be detectable by observers. As expected, people showed a faint smile and relaxed brows when the pictures were easier to see. It appears to be a feature of System 1 that cognitive ease is associated with good feelings. As expected, easily pronounced words evoke a favorable attitude. Companies with pronounceable names do better than others for the first week after the stock is issued, though the effect disappears over time. Stocks with pronounceable trading symbols, like K-A-R, car, or L-U-N-M-O-O, Lunmu, outperform those with tongue-twisting tickers like P-X-G or R-D-O and they appear to retain a small advantage over some time. A study conducted in Switzerland found that investors believe that stocks with fluent names like Emmy, Swiss First, and Comet will earn higher returns than those with clunky labels like Geberit and Ipsomed. As we saw in Figure 5, Repetition induces cognitive ease and a comforting feeling of familiarity. The famed psychologist, Robert Zions, dedicated much of his career to the study of the link between the repetition of an arbitrary stimulus and the mild affection that people eventually have for it. Zions called it the mere exposure effect. A demonstration conducted in the student newspapers of the University of Michigan and of Michigan State University is one of my favorite experiments. For a period of some weeks, an ad-like box appeared on the front page of the paper, which contained one of the following Turkish or Turkish-sounding words, kadurga, Saricic, Biwanyi, Nansoma, and Iktitaf. The frequency with which the words were repeated varied. One of the words was shown only once, the others appeared on two, five, ten, or twenty-five separate occasions. The words that were presented most often in one of the university papers were the least frequent in the other. No explanation was offered, and the reader's queries were answered by the statement that the purchaser of the display wished for anonymity. When the mysterious series of ads ended, the investigators sent questionnaires to the university communities asking for impressions of whether each of the words means something good or something bad. The results were spectacular. The words that were presented more frequently were rated much more favorably than the words that had been shown only once or twice. The finding has been confirmed in many experiments using Chinese ideographs, faces, and randomly shaped polygons. The mere exposure effect does not depend on the conscious experience of familiarity. In fact, the effect does not depend on consciousness at all. It occurs even when the repeated words or pictures are shown so quickly that the observers never become aware of having seen them they still end up liking the words or pictures that were presented more frequently. As should be clear by now, System 1 can respond to impressions of events of which System 2 is unaware. Indeed, the mere exposure effect is actually stronger for stimuli that the individual never consciously sees. Zions argued that the effect of repetition on liking is a profoundly important biological fact, and that it extends to all animals. To survive in a frequently dangerous world, an organism should react cautiously to a novel stimulus, with withdrawal and fear. Survival prospects are poor for an animal that is not suspicious of novelty. However, it is also adaptive for the initial caution to fade if the stimulus is actually safe. The mere exposure effect occurs, Zions claimed, because the repeated exposure of a stimulus is followed by nothing bad. Such a stimulus will eventually become a safety signal, and safety is good. Obviously, this argument is not restricted to humans. To make that point, one of Zions's associates exposed two sets of fertile chicken eggs to different tones. After they hatched, the chicks consistently emitted fewer distress calls when exposed to the tone they had heard while inhabiting the shell. Zionce offered an eloquent summary of his program of research. The consequences of repeated exposures benefit the organism in its relations to the immediate animate and inanimate environment. They allow the organism to distinguish objects and habitats that are safe from those that are not, and they are the most primitive basis of social attachments. Therefore, they form the basis for social organization and cohesion The Basic Sources of Psychological and Social Stability The link between positive emotion and cognitive ease in System 1 has a long evolutionary history. Ease, Mood, and Intuition Around 1960, a young psychologist named Sarnoff Mednik Thought he had identified the essence of creativity. His idea was as simple as it was powerful. Creativity is associative memory that works exceptionally well. He made up a test called the Remote Association Test, RAT, which is still often used in studies of creativity. For an easy example, consider the following three words cottage. Swiss. Cake. Can you think of a word that is associated with all three? You probably worked out that the answer is cheese. Now try this. Dive. Light. Rocket. This problem is much harder, but it has a unique correct answer which every speaker of English recognizes, Although less than 20% of a sample of students found it within 15 seconds, the answer is sky. Of course, not every triad of words has a solution. For example, the words dream, ball, book do not have a shared association that everyone will recognize as valid. Several teams of German psychologists that have studied the rat in recent years have come up with remarkable discoveries about cognitive ease. One of the teams raised two questions. Can people feel that a triad of words has a solution before they know what the solution is? How does mood influence performance in this task? To find out, they first made some of their subjects happy and others sad by asking them to think for several minutes about happy or sad episodes in their lives. Then they presented these subjects with a series of triads, half of them linked, such as dive, light, rocket, and half unlinked, such as dream, ball, book, and instructed them to press one of two keys very quickly to indicate their guess about whether the triad was linked. The time allowed for this guess, two seconds, was much too short for the actual solution to come to anyone's mind. The first surprise is that people's guesses are much more accurate than they would be by chance. I find this astonishing. A sense of cognitive ease is apparently generated by a very faint signal from the associative machine which knows that the three words are coherent, share an association, long before the association is retrieved. The role of cognitive ease in the judgment was confirmed experimentally by another German team, manipulations that increase cognitive ease. Priming, a clear font, pre-exposing words, all increase the tendency to see the words as linked. Another remarkable discovery is the powerful effect of mood on this intuitive performance. The experimenters computed an intuition index to measure accuracy. They found that putting the participants in a good mood before the test by having them think happy thoughts more than doubled accuracy. An even more striking result is that unhappy subjects were completely incapable of performing the intuitive task accurately. Their guesses were no better than random. Mood evidently affects the operation of System 1. When we are uncomfortable and unhappy, we lose touch with our intuition. These findings add to the growing evidence that good mood, intuition, Creativity, gullibility, and increased reliance on System 1 form a cluster. At the other pole, sadness, vigilance, suspicion, an analytic approach, and increased effort also go together. A happy mood loosens the control of System 2 over performance. When, in a good mood, people become more intuitive and more creative, but also less vigilant— and more prone to logical errors. Here again, as in the mere exposure effect, the connection makes biological sense. A good mood is a signal that things are generally going well, the environment is safe, and it is all right to let one's guard down. A bad mood indicates that things are not going very well, there may be a threat, and vigilance is required. Cognitive ease is both a cause and a consequence of a pleasant feeling. The remote association test has more to tell us about the link between cognitive ease and positive effect. Briefly consider two triads of words. Sleep. Mail. Switch. Salt. Deep. Foam. You could not know it, of course, but measurements of electrical activity in the muscles of your face would probably have shown a slight smile when you read the second triad, which is coherent. C is the solution. This smiling reaction to coherence appears in subjects who are told nothing about common associates. They are merely shown a vertically arranged triad of words and instructed to press the space bar after they have read it. The impression of cognitive ease that comes with the presentation of a coherent triad appears to be mildly pleasurable in itself. The evidence that we have about good feelings, cognitive ease, and the intuition of coherence is, as scientists say, correlational but not necessarily causal. Cognitive ease and smiling occur together but Do the good feelings actually lead to intuitions of coherence? Yes, they do. The proof comes from a clever experimental approach that has become increasingly popular. Some participants were given a cover story that provided an alternative interpretation for their good feeling. They were told about music played in their earphones that... Previous research showed that this music influences the emotional reactions of individuals. This story completely eliminates the intuition of coherence. The finding shows that the brief emotional response that follows the presentation of a triad of words, pleasant if the triad is coherent, unpleasant otherwise, is actually the basis of judgments of coherence. There is nothing here that System 1 cannot do. Emotional changes are now expected, and because they are unsurprising, they are not linked causally to the words. This is as good as psychological research ever gets, in its combination of experimental techniques and in its results, which are both robust and extremely surprising. We have learned a great deal about the automatic workings of System 1 in the last decades. Much of what we now know would have sounded like science fiction thirty or forty years ago. It was beyond imagining that bad font influences judgments of truth and improves cognitive performance, or that an emotional response to the cognitive ease of a triad of words mediates impressions of coherence. Psychology has come a long way. Speaking of Cognitive Ease Let's not dismiss their business plan just because the font makes it hard to read. We must be inclined to believe it because it has been repeated so often. But let's think it through again. Familiarity breeds liking. This is a mere exposure effect. I'm in a very good mood today, and my System 2 is weaker than usual. I should be extra careful. Chapter 6 Norms, Surprises, and Causes The central characteristics and functions of System 1 and System 2 have now been introduced, with a more detailed treatment of System 1. Freely mixing metaphors, We have in our head a remarkably powerful computer, not fast by conventional hardware standards, but able to represent the structure of our world by various types of associative links in a vast network of various types of ideas. The spreading of activation in the associative machine is automatic, but we, System 2, have some ability to control the search of memory and also to program it so that the detection of an event in the environment can attract attention. We next go into more detail of the wonders and limitation of what System 1 can do. Assessing Normality The main function of System 1 is to maintain and update a model of your personal world, which represents what is normal in it. The model is constructed by associations that link ideas of circumstances, events, actions, and outcomes that co-occur with some regularity, either at the same time or within a relatively short interval. As these links are formed and strengthened, the pattern of associated ideas comes to represent the structure of events in your life, and it determines your interpretation of the present as well as your expectations of the future. A capacity for surprise is an essential aspect of our mental life, and surprise itself is the most sensitive indication of how we understand our world and what we expect from it. There are two main varieties of surprise. Some expectations are active and conscious. You know you are waiting for a particular event to happen. When the hour is near, you may be expecting the sound of the door as your child returns from school. When the door opens, you expect the sound of a familiar voice. You will be surprised if an actively expected event does not occur. But there is a much larger category of events that you expect passively. You don't wait for them, but you are not surprised when they happen. These are events that are normal in a situation, though not sufficiently probable to be actively expected. A single incident may make a recurrence less surprising. Some years ago, my wife and I were vacationing in a small island resort on the Great Barrier Reef. There are only 40 guest rooms on the island. When we came to dinner, we were surprised to meet an acquaintance, a psychologist named John. We greeted each other warmly and commented on the coincidence. John left the resort the next day. About two weeks later, we were in a theater in London. A latecomer sat next to me after the lights went down. When the lights came up for the intermission, I saw that my neighbor was John. My wife and I commented later that we were simultaneously conscious of two facts. First, this was a more remarkable coincidence than the first meeting. Second, we were distinctly less surprised to meet John on the second occasion than we had been on the first. Evidently, the first meeting had somehow changed the idea of John in our minds. He was now the psychologist who shows up when we travel abroad. We, System 2, knew this was a ludicrous idea, but our System 1 had made it seem almost normal to meet John in strange places we would have experienced much more surprise if we had met any acquaintance other than John in the next seat of a London theatre. By any measure of probability, meeting John in the theatre was much less likely than meeting any one of our hundreds of acquaintances, yet meeting John seemed more normal. Under some conditions, passive expectations quickly turn active, as we found in another coincidence. On a Sunday evening some years ago we were driving from New York City to Princeton as we had been doing every week for a long time We saw an unusual sight a car on fire by the side of the road When we reached the same stretch of road the following Sunday another car was burning there Here again we found that we were distinctly less surprised on the second occasion than we had been on the first This was now the place where cars catch fire. Because the circumstances of the recurrence were the same, the second incident was sufficient to create an active expectation. For months, perhaps for years, after the event we were reminded of burning cars whenever we reached that spot of the road and were quite prepared to see another one. But of course we never did. The psychologist Dale Miller and I wrote an essay in which we attempted to explain how events come to be perceived as normal or abnormal. I will use an example from our description of norm theory, although my interpretation of it has changed slightly. An observer, casually watching the patrons at a neighboring table in a fashionable restaurant, notices that the first guest to taste the soup winces, as if in pain. The normality of a multitude of events will be altered by this incident. It is now unsurprising for the guest who first tasted the soup to startle violently when touched by a waiter. It is also unsurprising for another guest to stifle a cry when tasting soup from the same tureen. These events, and many others, appear more normal than they would have otherwise, but not necessarily because they confirm advance expectations. Rather, they appear normal because they recruit the original episode, retrieve it from memory, and are interpreted in conjunction with it. Imagine yourself the observer at the restaurant. You are surprised by the first guest's unusual reaction to the soup and surprised again by the startled response to the waiter's touch. However, the second abnormal event will retrieve the first from memory, and both make sense together. The two events fit into a pattern in which the guest is an exceptionally tense person. On the other hand, if the next thing that happens after the first guest's grimace is that another customer rejects the soup, these two surprises will be linked and the soup will surely be blamed. How many animals of each kind did Moses take into the ark? The number of people who detect what is wrong with this question is so small that it has been dubbed the Moses illusion. Moses took no animals into the ark. Noah did. Like the incident of the wincing soup eater, The Moses illusion is readily explained by norm theory. The idea of animals going into the ark sets up a biblical context, and Moses is not abnormal in that context. You did not positively expect him, but the mention of his name is not surprising. It also helps that Moses and Noah have the same vowel sound and the same number of syllables. As with the triads that produce cognitive ease, you unconsciously detect associative coherence between Moses and Ark, and so quickly accept the question. Replace Moses with George W. Bush in this sentence, and you will have a poor political joke, but no illusion. When something cement does not fit into the current context of activated ideas— the system detects an abnormality, as you just experienced. You had no particular idea of what was coming after something, but you knew when the word cement came that it was abnormal in that sentence. Studies of brain responses have shown that violations of normality are detected with astonishing speed and subtlety. In a recent experiment, people heard the sentence, Earth revolves around the trouble every year. A distinctive pattern was detected in brain activity, starting within two-tenths of a second of the onset of the odd word. Even more remarkable, the same brain response occurs at the same speed when a male voice says, I believe I am pregnant because I feel sick every morning. Or when an upper-class voice says, I have a large tattoo on my back. A vast amount of world knowledge must instantly be brought to bear for the incongruity to be recognized. The voice must be identified as upper-class English and confronted with the generalization that large tattoos are uncommon in the upper class. We are able to communicate with each other because our knowledge of the world and our use of words are largely shared. When I mention a table, without specifying further, You understand that I mean a normal table. You know with certainty that its surface is approximately level, and that it has far fewer than twenty-five legs. We have norms for a vast number of categories, and these norms provide the background for the immediate detection of anomalies, such as pregnant men and tattooed aristocrats. To appreciate the role of norms in communication, Consider the sentence, The large mouse climbed over the trunk of the very small elephant. I can count on your having norms for the size of mice and elephants that are not too far from mine. The norms specify a typical or average size for these animals, and they also contain information about the range or variability within the category it is highly unlikely that either of us got the image in our mind's eye of a mouse larger than an elephant striding over an elephant smaller than a mouse. Instead, we each separately but jointly visualized a mouse smaller than a shoe clamoring over an elephant larger than a sofa. System one, which understands language, has access to norms of categories which specify the range of plausible values as well as the most typical cases. Seeing Causes and Intentions Fred's parents arrived late. The caterers were expected soon. Fred was angry. You know why Fred was angry, and it is not because the caterers were expected soon. In your network of associations, anger and lack of punctuality are linked as an effect and its possible cause, but there is no such link between anger and the idea of expecting caterers. A coherent story was instantly constructed as you read. You immediately knew the cause of Fred's anger. Finding such causal connections is part of understanding a story and is an automatic operation of System 1. System 2, your conscious self, was offered the causal interpretation and accepted it. A story in Nassim Taleb's The Black Swan illustrates this automatic search for causality he reports that bond prices initially rose on the day of Saddam Hussein's capture in his hiding place in Iraq. Investors were apparently seeking safer assets that morning, and the Bloomberg News Service flashed this headline, U.S. Treasuries Rise, Hussein Capture May Not Curb Terrorism. Half an hour later, bond prices fell back, and the revised headline read, U.S. Treasuries Fall Hussein Capture Boosts Allure of Risky Assets Obviously, Hussein's capture was the major event of the day, and because of the way the automatic search for causes shapes our thinking, that event was destined to be the explanation of whatever happened in the market on that day. The two headlines looked superficially like explanations of what happened in the market, But a statement that can explain two contradictory outcomes explains nothing at all. In fact, all the headlines do is satisfy our need for coherence. A large event is supposed to have consequences, and consequences need causes to explain them. We have limited information about what happened on a day, and System 1 is adept at finding a coherent causal story that links the fragments of knowledge at its disposal. Listen to this sentence. After spending a day exploring beautiful sights in the crowded streets of New York, Jane discovered that her wallet was missing. When people who had read this brief story, along with many others, were given a surprise recall test, The word pickpocket was more strongly associated with the story than the word sights, even though the latter was actually in the sentence, while the former was not. The rules of associative coherence tell us what happened. The event of a lost wallet could evoke many different causes. The wallet slipped out of a pocket, was left in a restaurant, etc. However, When the ideas of lost wallet, New York, and crowds are juxtaposed, they jointly evoke the explanation that a pickpocket caused the loss. In the story of the startling soup, the outcome, whether another customer wincing at the taste of the soup or the first person's extreme reaction to the waiter's touch, brings about an associatively coherent interpretation of the initial surprise, completing a plausible story. The aristocratic Belgian psychologist Albert Michotte published a book in 1945, translated into English in 1963, that overturned centuries of thinking about causality, going back at least to Hume's examination of the association of ideas. The commonly accepted wisdom was that we infer physical causality from repeated observations of correlations among events. We have had myriad experiences in which we saw one object in motion touching another object, which immediately starts to move, often, but not always, in the same direction. This is what happens when a billiard ball hits another. And it is also what happens when you knock over a vase by brushing against it. Michaud had a different idea. He argued that we see causality just as directly as we see color. To make his point, he created episodes in which a black square drawn on paper is seen in motion. It comes into contact with another square, which immediately begins to move. The observers know that there is no real physical contact, but they nevertheless have a powerful illusion of causality. If the second object starts moving instantly, they describe it as having been launched by the first. Experiments have shown that six-month-old infants see the sequence of events as a cause-effect scenario, and they indicate surprise when the sequence is altered. We are evidently ready from birth to have impressions of causality, which do not depend on reasoning about patterns of causation. They are products of System 1. In 1944, at about the same time as Michotte published his demonstrations of physical causality, the psychologists Fritz Heider and Mary Ann Simmel used a method similar to Michotte's to demonstrate the perception of intentional causality. They made a film which lasts all of one minute and forty seconds in which you see a large triangle, a small triangle, and a circle moving around a shape that looks like a schematic view of a house with an open door. Viewers see an aggressive, large triangle, bullying a smaller triangle, a terrified circle, the circle and the small triangle joining forces to defeat the bully. They also observe much interaction around a door, and then an explosive finale. The perception of intention and emotion is irresistible. Only people afflicted by autism do not experience it. All this is entirely in your mind, of course. Your mind is ready and even eager to identify agents, assign them personality traits and specific intentions, and view their actions as expressing individual propensities. Here again, The evidence is that we are born prepared to make intentional attributions. Infants under one year old identify bullies and victims and expect a pursuer to follow the most direct path in attempting to catch whatever it is chasing. The experience of freely willed action is quite separate from physical causality. Although it is your hand that picks up the salt You do not think of the event in terms of a chain of physical causation. You experience it as caused by a decision that a disembodied you made, because you wanted to add salt to your food. Many people find it natural to describe their soul as the source and the cause of their actions. The psychologist Paul Bloom, writing in The Atlantic in 2005, presented the provocative claim that our inborn readiness to separate physical and intentional causality explains the near-universality of religious beliefs. He observes that we perceive the world of objects as essentially separate from the world of minds, making it possible for us to envision soulless bodies and bodiless souls. The two modes of causation that we are set to perceive make it natural for us to accept the two central beliefs of many religions. An immaterial divinity is the ultimate cause of the physical world, and immortal souls temporarily control our bodies while we live and leave them behind as we die. In Bloom's view, the two concepts of causality were shaped separately by evolutionary forces— Building the Origins of Religion into the Structure of System 1. The prominence of causal intuitions is a recurrent theme in this book because people are prone to apply causal thinking inappropriately to situations that require statistical reasoning. Statistical thinking derives conclusions about individual cases from properties of categories and ensembles. Unfortunately, System 1 does not have the capability for this mode of reasoning. System 2 can learn to think statistically, but few people receive the necessary training. The psychology of causality was the basis of my decision to describe psychological processes by the metaphors of agency, with little concern for consistency. I sometimes refer to System 1 as an agent with certain traits and preferences, and sometimes as an associative machine that represents reality by a complex pattern of links. The system and the machine are fictions. My reason for using them is that they fit the way we think about causes. Hyder's triangles and circles are not really agents. It is just very easy and natural to think of them that way. It is a matter of mental economy. I assume that you, like me, find it easier to think about the mind if we describe what happens in terms of traits and intentions, the two systems, and sometimes in terms of mechanical regularities, the associative machine. I do not intend to convince you that the systems are real any more than Hyder intended you to believe that the large triangle is really a bully. Speaking of Norms and Causes When the second applicant also turned out to be an old friend of mine, I wasn't quite as surprised. Very little repetition is needed for a new experience to feel normal. When we survey the reaction to these products, let's make sure we don't focus exclusively on the average. We should consider the entire range of normal reactions. She can't accept that she was just unlucky. She needs a causal story. She will end up thinking that someone intentionally sabotaged her work. Chapter 7 A Machine for Jumping to Conclusions The great comedian Danny Kaye had a line that has stayed with me since my adolescence. Speaking of a woman he dislikes, he says, Her favorite position is beside herself, and her favorite sport is jumping to conclusions. The line came up, I remember, in the initial conversation with Amos Tversky about the rationality of statistical intuitions, and now I believe it offers an apt description of how system one functions. Jumping to conclusions is efficient if the conclusions are likely to be correct, and the costs of an occasional mistake acceptable, and if the jump saves much time and effort. Jumping to conclusions is risky when the situation is unfamiliar, the stakes are high, and there is time to collect more information. These are the circumstances in which intuitive errors are probable, which may be prevented by a deliberate intervention of System 2. Neglect of Ambiguity and Suppression of Doubt See Figure 6 on the PDF. On the left, you see ABC. In the center, Anne approached the bank. On the right, 12, 13, 14. What do the three exhibits in Figure 6 have in common? The answer is that all are ambiguous. You almost certainly read the display on the left as A, B, C, and the one on the right as 12, 13, 14, but the middle items in both displays are identical. You could just as well have read them as A, 13, C, or 12, B, 14, but you did not. Why not? The same shape is read as a letter in a context of letters and as a number in a context of numbers the entire context helps determine the interpretation of each element. The shape is ambiguous, but you jump to a conclusion about its identity and do not become aware of the ambiguity that was resolved. As for Anne, you probably imagined a woman with money on her mind, walking toward a building with tellers and secure vaults. But this plausible interpretation is not the only possible one, the sentence is ambiguous. If an earlier sentence had been, they were floating gently down the river, you would have imagined an altogether different scene. When you have just been thinking of a river, the word bank is not associated with money. In the absence of an explicit context, system one automatically supplied a context of its own. We know that it is System 1 because you were not aware of the choice or of the possibility of another interpretation. Unless you have been canoeing recently, you probably spend more time going to banks than floating on rivers, and you resolved the ambiguity accordingly. When uncertain, System 1 bets on an answer, and the bets are guided by experience. The rules of the betting are intelligent, Recent events and the current context have the most weight in determining an interpretation. When no recent event comes to mind, more distant memories govern. Among your earliest and most memorable experiences was singing your ABCs. You did not sing your A13Cs. The most important aspect of both examples is that a definite choice was made, but you did not know it. Only one interpretation came to mind, and you were never aware of the ambiguity. System one does not keep track of alternatives that it rejects, or even of the fact that there were alternatives. Conscious doubt is not in the repertoire of system one. It requires maintaining incompatible interpretations in mind at the same time, which demands mental effort. Uncertainty and doubt. Are the domain of System 2. A Bias to Believe and Confirm. The psychologist Daniel Gilbert, widely known as the author of Stumbling to Happiness, once wrote an essay titled How Mental Systems Believe, in which he developed a theory of believing and unbelieving that he traced to the seventeenth-century philosopher Baruch Spinoza. Gilbert proposed that understanding a statement must begin with an attempt to believe it. You must first know what the idea would mean if it were true. Only then can you decide whether or not to unbelieve it. The initial attempt to believe is an automatic operation of System 1, which involves the construction of the best possible interpretation of the situation. Even a nonsensical statement, Gilbert argues, will evoke initial belief. Try his example. Whitefish eat candy. You probably were aware of vague impressions of fish and candy, as an automatic process of associative memory searched for links between the two ideas that would make sense of the nonsense. Gilbert sees unbelieving as an operation of system two, and he reported an elegant experiment to make his point. The participants saw nonsensical assertions such as, a dinka is a flame, followed after a few seconds by a single word, true or false. They were later tested for their memory of which sentences had been labeled true. In one condition of the experiment, subjects were required to hold digits in memory during the task. The disruption of System 2 had a selective effect. It made it difficult for people to unbelieve false sentences. In a later test of memory, the depleted participants ended up thinking that many of the false sentences were true. The moral is significant. When System 2 is otherwise engaged, we will believe almost anything. System 1 is gullible and biased to believe. System 2 is in charge of doubting and unbelieving, but System 2 is sometimes busy and often lazy. Indeed, there is evidence that people are more likely to be influenced by empty persuasive messages such as commercials when they are tired and depleted the operations of associative memory contribute to a general confirmation bias. When asked, is Sam friendly? Different instances of Sam's behavior will come to mind than would if you had been asked, is Sam unfriendly? A deliberate search for confirming evidence known as positive test strategy is also how system two tests a hypothesis. Contrary to the rules of philosophers of science, who advise testing hypotheses by trying to refute them, people, and scientists quite often, seek data that are likely to be compatible with the beliefs they currently hold. The confirmatory bias of System 1 favors uncritical acceptance of suggestions and exaggeration of the likelihood of extreme and improbable events. If you are asked about the probability of a tsunami hitting California within the next 30 years, the images that come to your mind are likely to be images of tsunamis in the manner Gilbert proposed for nonsense statements, such as, Whitefish eat candy. You will be prone to overestimate the probability of a disaster. Exaggerated Emotional Coherence Halo effect. If you like the president's politics, you probably like his voice and his appearance as well. The tendency to like or dislike everything about a person, including things you have not observed, is known as the halo effect. The term has been in use in psychology for a century, but it has not come into wide use in everyday language. This is a pity because the halo effect is a good name for a common bias that plays a large role in shaping our view of people and situations. It is one of the ways the representation of the world that System 1 generates is simpler and more coherent than the real thing. You meet a woman named Joan at a party and find her personable and easy to talk to. Now her name comes up as someone who could be asked to contribute to a charity. What do you know about Joan's generosity? The correct answer is that you know virtually nothing, because there is little reason to believe that people who are agreeable in social situations are also generous contributors to charities. But you like Joan, and you will retrieve the feeling of liking her when you think of her you also like generosity and generous people. By association, you are now predisposed to believe that Joan is generous. And now that you believe she is generous, you probably like Joan even better than you did earlier, because you have added generosity to her pleasant attributes. Real evidence of generosity is missing in the story of Joan, and the gap is filled by a guess that fits one's emotional response to her. In other situations, evidence accumulates gradually, and the interpretation is shaped by the emotion attached to the first impression. In an enduring classic of psychology, Solomon Ash presented descriptions of two people and asked for comments on their personality. What do you think of Alan and Ben? Alan, Intelligent, Industrious, Impulsive, Critical, Stubborn, Envious Ben Envious, Stubborn, Critical, Impulsive, Industrious, Intelligent If you are like most of us, you viewed Alan much more favorably than Ben. The initial traits in the list change the very meaning of the traits that appear later. The stubbornness of an intelligent person is seen as likely to be justified and may actually evoke respect. But intelligence in an envious and stubborn person makes him more dangerous. The halo effect is also an example of suppressed ambiguity. Like the word bank, the adjective stubborn is ambiguous and will be interpreted in a way that makes it coherent with the context. There have been many variations on this research theme. Participants in one study first considered the first three adjectives that describe Allen, Then they considered the last three, which belonged, they were told, to another person. When they had imagined the two individuals, the participants were asked if it was plausible for all six adjectives to describe the same person, and most of them thought it was impossible. The sequence in which we observe characteristics of a person is often determined by chance. Sequence matters, however, because the halo effect increases the weight of first impressions, sometimes to the point that subsequent information is mostly wasted. Early in my career as a professor, I graded students' essay exams in the conventional way. I would pick up one test booklet at a time, and read all that student's essays in immediate succession, grading them as I went. I would then compute the total and go on to the next student. I eventually noticed that my evaluations of the essays in each booklet were strikingly homogenous. I began to suspect that my grading exhibited a halo effect, and that the first question I scored had a disproportionate effect on the overall grade. The mechanism was simple. If I had given a high score to the first essay, I gave the student the benefit of the doubt whenever I encountered a vague or ambiguous statement later on. This seemed reasonable. Surely a student who had done so well in the first essay would not make a foolish mistake in the second one. But there was a serious problem with my way of doing things. If a student had written two essays, one strong and one weak— I would end up with different final grades depending on which essay I read first. I had told the students that the two essays had equal weight, but that was not true. The first one had a much greater impact on the final grade than the second. This was unacceptable. I adopted a new procedure. Instead of reading the booklets in sequence, I read and scored all the students' answers to the first question, then went on to the next one. I made sure to write all the scores on the inside back page of the booklet so that I would not be biased, even unconsciously, when I read the second essay. Soon after switching to the new method, I made a disconcerting observation. My confidence in my grading now was much lower than it had been. The reason was, that I frequently experienced a discomfort that was new to me. When I was disappointed with a student's second essay, and went to the back page of the booklet to enter a poor grade, I occasionally discovered that I had given a top grade to the same student's first essay. I also noticed that I was tempted to reduce the discrepancy by changing the grade that I had not yet written down, and found it hard to follow the simple rule of never yielding to that temptation. My grades for the essays of a single student often varied over a considerable range. The lack of coherence left me uncertain and frustrated. I was now less happy with and less confident in my grades than I had been earlier, but I recognized that this was a good sign, an indication that the new procedure was superior. The consistency I had enjoyed earlier was spurious. It produced a feeling of cognitive ease, and my system too was happy to lazily accept the final grade. By allowing myself to be strongly influenced by the first question in evaluating subsequent ones, I spared myself the dissonance of finding the same student doing very well on some questions and badly on others. The uncomfortable inconsistency that was revealed when I switched to the new procedure was real. It reflected both the inadequacy of any single question as a measure of what the student knew— and the unreliability of my own grading. The procedure I adopted to tame the halo effect conforms to a general principle, de-correlate error. To understand how this principle works, imagine that a large number of observers are shown glass jars containing pennies and are challenged to estimate the number of pennies in each jar. As James Surowicky explained in his best-selling The Wisdom of Crowds, this is the kind of task in which individuals do very poorly, but pools of individual judgments do remarkably well. Some individuals greatly overestimate the true number, others underestimate it, but when many judgments are averaged, the average tends to be quite accurate. The mechanism is straightforward. All individuals look at the same jar, and all their judgments have a common basis. On the other hand, the errors that individuals make are independent of the errors made by others, and, in the absence of a systematic bias, they tend to average to zero. However, the magic of error reduction works well only when the observations are independent and their errors uncorrelated. If the observers share a bias, the aggregation of judgments will not reduce it. Allowing the observers to influence each other effectively reduces the size of the sample, and with it, the precision of the group estimate. To derive the most useful information from multiple sources of evidence, you should always try to make these sources independent of each other. This rule is part of good police procedure. When there are multiple witnesses to an event, they are not allowed to discuss it before giving their testimony. The goal is not only to prevent collusion by hostile witnesses, it is also to prevent unbiased witnesses from influencing each other. Witnesses who exchange their experiences will tend to make similar errors in their testimony Reducing the total value of the information they provide. Eliminating redundancy from your sources of information is always a good idea. The principle of independent judgments and decorrelated errors has immediate applications for the conduct of meetings, an activity in which executives and organizations spend a great deal of their working days. A simple rule can help. Before an issue is discussed, all members of the committee should be asked to write a very brief summary of their position. This procedure makes good use of the value of the diversity of knowledge and opinion in the group. The standard practice of open discussion gives too much weight to the opinions of those who speak early and assertively, causing others to line up behind them. What you see is all there is. One of my favorite memories of the early years of working with Amos is a comedy routine he enjoyed performing. In a perfect impersonation of one of the professors with whom he had studied psychology as an undergraduate, Amos would growl in Hebrew marked by a thick German accent, You must never forget the primate of the is. What exactly his teacher had meant by that phrase never became clear to me, or to Amos, I believe, but Amos's jokes always made a point. He was reminded of the old phrase, and eventually I was too, whenever we encountered the remarkable asymmetry between the ways our mind treats information that is currently available and information we do not have. An essential design feature of the associative machine is that it represents only activated ideas. Information that is not retrieved, even unconsciously, from memory might as well not exist. System 1 excels at constructing the best possible story that incorporates ideas currently activated, but it does not, cannot allow for information it does not have. The measure of success for System 1 is the coherence of the story it manages to create. The amount and quality of the data on which the story is based are largely irrelevant. When information is scarce, which is a common occurrence, System 1 operates as a machine for jumping to conclusions. Consider the following. Will Mindick be a good leader? She is intelligent and strong. An answer quickly came to your mind and it was yes you picked the best answer based on the very limited information available but you jumped the gun what if the next two adjectives were corrupt and cruel take note of what you did not do as you briefly thought of mindick as a leader you did not start by asking what would i need to know before i formed an opinion about the quality of someone's leadership System one got to work on its own from the first adjective. Intelligent is good, intelligent and strong is very good. This is the best story that can be constructed from two adjectives, and system one delivered it with great cognitive ease. The story will be revised if new information comes in, such as, Mindic is corrupt. But there is no waiting and no subjective discomfort and there also remains a bias favoring the first impression. The combination of a coherence-seeking System 1 with a lazy System 2 implies that System 2 will endorse many intuitive beliefs which closely reflect the impressions generated by System 1. Of course, System 2 also is capable of a more systematic and careful approach to evidence, and of following a list of boxes that must be checked before making a decision. Think of buying a home when you deliberately seek information that you don't have. However, System 1 is expected to influence even the more careful decisions. Its input never ceases. Jumping to conclusions on the basis of limited evidence is so important to an understanding of intuitive thinking that it comes up so often in this book that I will use a cumbersome abbreviation for it, W-Y-S-I-A-T-I, which stands for What You See Is All There Is. System 1 is radically insensitive to both the quality and the quantity of the information that gives rise to impressions and intuitions. Amos, with two of his graduate students at Stanford, reported a study that bears directly on what you see is all there is by observing the reaction of people who are given one-sided evidence and know it. The participants were exposed to legal scenarios such as the following. On September 3rd, plaintiff David Thornton, a 43-year-old union field representative, was present in Thrifty Drugstore Number 168, Performing a Routine Union Visit Within ten minutes of his arrival, a store manager confronted him and told him he could no longer speak with the union employees on the floor of the store. Instead, he would have to see them in a back room while they were on break. Such a request is allowed by the union contract with Thrifty Drug, but had never before been enforced. When Mr. Thornton objected, he was told that he had the choice of conforming to these requirements, leaving the store, or being arrested. At this point, Mr. Thornton indicated to the manager that he had always been allowed to speak to employees on the floor for as much as ten minutes, as long as no business was disrupted, and that he would rather be arrested than change the procedure of his routine visit. The manager then called the police and had Mr. Thornton handcuffed in the store for trespassing. After he was booked and put into a holding cell for a brief time, all charges were dropped. Mr. Thornton is suing Thrifty Drug for false arrest. In addition to this background material, which all participants read, different groups were exposed to presentations by the lawyers for the two parties. Naturally, The lawyer for the union organizer described the arrest as an intimidation attempt, while the lawyer for the store argued that having the talk in the store was disruptive and that the manager was acting properly. Some participants, like a jury, heard both sides. The lawyers added no useful information that you could not infer from the background story. The participants were fully aware of the setup, and those who heard only one side could easily have generated the argument for the other side. Nevertheless, the presentation of one-sided evidence had a very pronounced effect on judgments. Furthermore, participants who saw one-sided evidence were more confident of their judgments than those who saw both sides. This is just what you would expect if the confidence that people experience is determined by the coherence of the story they manage to construct from available information. It is the consistency of the information that matters for a good story, not its completeness. Indeed, you will often find that knowing little makes it easier to fit everything you know into a coherent pattern. What you see is all there is, is essential to creating associative coherence and the cognitive ease that causes us to accept a statement as true. It explains why we can think fast, and how we are able to make sense of partial information in a complex world. Much of the time, the coherent story we put together is close enough to reality to support reasonable action. However, I will also invoke what you see is all there is to help explain a long and diverse list of biases of judgment and choice, including the following among many others. Overconfidence. As the what you see is all there is rule implies, neither the quantity nor the quality of the evidence counts for much in subjective confidence. The confidence that individuals have in their beliefs depends mostly on the quality of the story they can tell about what they see, even if they see little. We often fail to allow for the possibility that evidence that should be critical to our judgment is missing. What we see is all there is. Furthermore, our associative system tends to settle on a coherent pattern of activation and suppresses doubt and ambiguity framing effects. Different ways of presenting the same information often evoke different emotions. The statement that the odds of survival one month after surgery are 90 percent is more reassuring than the equivalent statement that mortality within one month of surgery is 10 percent. Similarly, cold cuts described as 90 percent fat-free are more attractive than when they are described as 10% fat. The equivalence of the alternative formulations is transparent, but an individual normally sees only one formulation, and what she sees is all there is. Base Rate Neglect Recall Steve, the meek and tidy soul who is often believed to be a librarian. The personality description is salient and vivid, and although you surely know that there are more male farmers than male librarians, that statistical fact almost certainly did not come to your mind when you first considered the question. What you saw was all there was. More generally, statistical information is often ignored in making forecasts about individual cases, because it tends to be less vivid, salient, and interesting than specific information about the case at hand. Speaking of jumping to conclusions. She knows nothing about this person's management skills. All she is going by is the halo effect from a good presentation. Let's de-correlate errors by obtaining separate judgments on the issue before any discussion. We will get more information from independent assessments. They made that big decision on the basis of a good report from one consultant. What you see is all there is. They did not seem to realize how little information they had. They didn't want more information that might spoil their story. What you see is all there is. Chapter 8 How judgments happen. There is no limit to the number of questions you can answer, whether they are questions someone else asks or questions you ask yourself. Nor is there a limit to the number of attributes you can evaluate. You are capable of counting the number of capital letters on a page, comparing the height of the windows of your house to the one across the street and assessing the political prospects of your senator on a scale from excellent to disastrous. The questions are addressed to System 2, which will direct attention and search memory to find the answers. System 2 receives questions or generates them. In either case, it directs attention and searches memory to find the answers. System 1 operates differently. It continuously monitors what is going on outside and inside the mind, and continuously generates assessments of various aspects of the situation without specific intention and with little or no effort. These basic assessments play an important role in intuitive judgment, because they are easily substituted for more difficult questions, This is the essential idea of the heuristics and biases approach. Two other features of System 1 also support the substitution of one judgment for another. One is the ability to translate values across dimensions, which you do in answering a question that most people find easy. If Sam were as tall as he is intelligent, how tall would he be? Finally, there is the mental shotgun. An intention of System 2 to answer a specific question or evaluate a particular attribute of the situation automatically triggers other computations, including basic assessments. Basic Assessments System 1 has been shaped by evolution to provide a continuous assessment of the main problems that an organism must solve to survive. How are things going? Is there a threat or a major opportunity? Is everything normal? Should I approach or avoid? The questions are perhaps less urgent for a human in a city environment than for a gazelle on the savanna, but we have inherited the neural mechanisms that evolved to provide ongoing assessments of threat level, and they have not been turned off. Situations are constantly evaluated as good or bad, requiring escape or permitting approach. Good mood and cognitive ease are the human equivalents of assessments of safety and familiarity. For a specific example of basic assessment, consider the ability to discriminate friend from foe at a glance. This contributes to one's chances of survival in a dangerous world, and such a specialized capability has indeed evolved. Alex Todorov, my colleague at Princeton, has explored the biological roots of the rapid judgments of how safe it is to interact with a stranger. He showed that we are endowed with an ability to evaluate, in a single glance at a stranger's face, two potentially crucial facts about that person. How dominant, and therefore potentially threatening he is, and how trustworthy he is, whether his intentions are more likely to be friendly or hostile. The shape of the face provides the cues for assessing dominance. A strong, square chin is one such cue. Facial expression, smile or frown, provides the cues for assessing the stranger's intentions. The combination of a square chin with a turned-down mouth may spell trouble. The accuracy of face reading is far from perfect. Round chins are not a reliable indicator of meekness. And smiles can, to some extent, be faked. Still, even an imperfect ability to assess strangers confers a survival advantage. This ancient mechanism is put to a novel use in the modern world. It has some influence on how people vote. Todorov showed his students pictures of men's faces, sometimes for as little as one-tenth of a second, and asked them to rate the faces on various attributes, including likability and competence. Observers agreed quite well on those ratings. The faces that Todorov showed were not a random set. They were campaign portraits of politicians competing for elective office. Todorov then compared the results of the electoral races to the ratings of competence that Princeton students had made, based on brief exposure to photographs and without any political context. In about 70 percent of the races for senator, congressman, and governor, the election winner was the candidate whose face had earned a higher rating of competence. This striking result was quickly confirmed in national elections in Finland, in zoning board elections in England, and in various electoral contests in Australia, Germany, and Mexico. Surprisingly, at least to me, ratings of competence were far more predictive of voting outcomes in Todorov's study than ratings of likability. Todorov has found that people judge competence by combining the two dimensions of strength and trustworthiness. The faces that exude competence combine a strong chin with a slight confident appearing smile. There is no evidence that these facial features actually predict how well politicians will perform in office. But studies of the brain's response to winning and losing candidates show that we are biologically predisposed to reject candidates who lack the attributes we value. In this research, losers evoked stronger indications of negative emotional response. This is an example of what I will call a judgment heuristic in the following chapters. Voters are attempting to form an impression of how good a candidate will be in office, and they fall back on a simpler assessment that is made quickly and automatically and is available when System 2 must make its decision. Political scientists followed up on Todorov's initial research by identifying a category of voters for whom the automatic preferences of System 1 are particularly likely to play a large role. They found what they were looking for among politically uninformed voters who watch a great deal of television. As expected, the effect of facial competence on voting is about three times larger for information-poor and TV-prone voters than for others who are better informed and watch less television. Evidently, the relative importance of System 1 in determining voting choices is not the same for all people. We will encounter other examples of such individual differences. System 1 understands language, of course, and understanding depends on the basic assessments that are routinely carried out as part of the perception of events and the comprehension of messages. These assessments include computations of similarity and representativeness, attributions of causality, and evaluations of the availability of associations and exemplars. They are performed even in the absence of a specific task set although the results are used to meet task demands as they arise. The list of basic assessments is long, but not every possible attribute is assessed. For an example, look briefly at Figure 7 on the PDF. A glance provides an immediate impression of many features of the display. You know that the two towers are equally tall, and that they are more similar to each other than the tower on the left is to the array of blocks in the middle. However, you do not immediately know that the number of blocks in the left-hand tower is the same as the number of blocks arrayed on the floor, and you have no impression of the height of the tower that you could build from them. To confirm that the numbers are the same, you would need to count the two sets of blocks and compare the results— an activity that only System 2 can carry out. Sets and Prototypes For another example, consider the question, What is the average length of the lines in Figure 8 on the PDF? This question is easy, and System 1 answers it without prompting. Experiments have shown that a fraction of a second is sufficient for people to register the average length of an array of lines with considerable precision. Furthermore, the accuracy of these judgments is not impaired when the observer is cognitively busy with a memory task. They do not necessarily know how to describe the average in inches or centimeters, but they will be very accurate in adjusting the length of another line to match the average. System 2 is not needed to form an impression of the norm of length for an array. System 1 does it, automatically and effortlessly, just as it registers the color of the lines and the fact that they are all vertical. We also can form an immediate impression of the number of objects in an array, precisely if there are four or fewer objects, crudely if there are more. Now to another question. What is the total length of the lines in figure 8? This is a different experience because system 1 has no suggestions to offer. The only way you can answer this question is by activating system 2, which will laboriously estimate the average, estimate or count the lines, and multiply average length by the number of lines. The failure of System 1 to compute the total length of a set of lines at a glance may look obvious to you. You never thought you could do it. It is in fact an instance of an important limitation of that system. Because System 1 represents categories by a prototype or a set of typical exemplars, it deals well with averages but poorly with sums. The size of the category, the number of instances it contains, tends to be ignored in judgments of what I will call sum-like variables. Participants in one of the numerous experiments that were prompted by the litigation following the disastrous Exxon Valdez oil spill were asked their willingness to pay for nets to cover oil ponds in which migratory birds often drown. Different groups of participants stated their willingness to pay to save 2,000, 20,000, or 200,000 birds. If saving birds is an economic good, it should be a sum-like variable. Saving 200,000 birds should be worth much more than saving 2,000 birds. In fact, The average contributions of the three groups were $80, $78, and $88, respectively. The number of birds made very little difference. What the participants reacted to in all three groups was a prototype. The awful image of a helpless bird drowning, its feathers soaked in thick oil. The almost complete neglect of quantity in such emotional contexts has been confirmed many times. Intensity Matching Questions about your happiness, the president's popularity, the proper punishment of financial evildoers, and the future prospects of a politician share an important characteristic they all refer to an underlying dimension of intensity or amount, which permits the use of the word more, more happy, more popular, more severe, or more powerful for a politician. For example, a candidate's political future can range from the low of, she will be defeated in the primary, to a high of, she will someday be president of the United States here we encounter a new aptitude of System 1. An underlying scale of intensity allows matching across diverse dimensions. If crimes were colors, murder would be a deeper shade of red than theft. If crimes were expressed as music, mass murder would be played fortissimo, while accumulating unpaid parking tickets would be a faint pianissimo. And, of course, you have similar feelings about the intensity of punishments. In classic experiments, people adjusted the loudness of a sound to the severity of crimes. Other people adjusted loudness to the severity of legal punishments. If you heard two notes, one for the crime and one for the punishment, you would feel a sense of injustice if one tone was much louder than the other. Consider an example that we will encounter again later. Julie read fluently when she was four years old. Now, match Julie's reading prowess as a child to the following intensity scales. How tall is a man who is as tall as Julie was precocious? What do you think of six feet? Obviously too little. What about seven feet? Probably too much you are looking for a height that is as remarkable as the achievement of reading at age four. Fairly remarkable, but not extraordinary. Reading at fifteen months would be extraordinary, perhaps like a man who is seven feet eight inches. What level of income in your profession matches Julie's reading achievement? Which crime is as severe as Julie was precocious? Which graduating GPA in an Ivy League college matches Julie's reading? Not very hard, was it? Furthermore, you can be assured that your matches will be quite close to those of other people in your cultural milieu. We will see that when people are asked to predict Julie's GPA from the information about the age at which she learned to read, they answer by translating from one scale to another and pick the matching GPA. And we will also see why this mode of prediction by matching is statistically wrong, although it is perfectly natural to System 1, and for most people, except statisticians, it is also acceptable to System 2. The Mental Shotgun System 1 carries out many computations at any one time. Some of these are routine assessments that go on continuously. Whenever your eyes are open, your brain computes a three-dimensional representation of what is in your field of vision, complete with the shape of objects, their position in space, and their identity. No intention is needed to trigger this operation or the continuous monitoring for violated expectations. In contrast to these routine assessments, other computations are undertaken only when needed. You do not maintain a continuous evaluation of how happy or wealthy you are, and even if you are a political addict, you do not continuously assess the president's prospects. The occasional judgments are voluntary. They occur only when you intend them to do so. You do not automatically count the number of syllables in every word you read, but you can do it if you so choose. However, the control over intended computations is far from precise. We often compute much more than we want or need. I call this excess computation the mental shotgun. It is impossible to aim at a single point with a shotgun because it shoots pellets that scatter, and it seems almost equally difficult for System 1 not to do more than System 2 charges it to do. Two experiments that I read long ago suggested this image. Participants in one experiment listened to pairs of words with the instruction to press a key as quickly as possible whenever they detected that the words rhymed. The words rhyme in both these pairs. Vote, note. Vote, goat. The difference is obvious to you because you see the two pairs. Vote and goat rhyme, but they are spelled differently. The participants only heard the words, but they were also influenced by the spelling they were distinctly slower to recognize the words as rhyming if their spelling was discrepant. Although the instructions required only a comparison of sounds, the participants also compared their spelling, and the mismatch on the irrelevant dimension slowed them down. An intention to answer one question evoked another, which was not only superfluous, but actually detrimental to the main task. In another study, people listened to a series of sentences with the instruction to press one key as quickly as possible to indicate if the sentence was literally true, and another key if the sentence was not literally true. What are the correct responses for the following sentences? Some roads are snakes. Some jobs are snakes. Some jobs are jails all three sentences are literally false. However, you probably noticed that the second sentence is more obviously false than the other two. The reaction times collected in the experiment confirmed a substantial difference. The reason for the difference is that the two difficult sentences can be metaphorically true. Here again, the intention to perform one computation evoked another. And here again, the correct answer prevailed in the conflict, but the conflict with the irrelevant answer disrupted performance. In the next chapter, we will see that the combination of a mental shotgun with intensity matching explains why we have intuitive judgments about many things that we know little about. Speaking of Judgment Evaluating people as attractive or not is a basic assessment. You do that automatically whether or not you want to, and it influences you. There are circuits in the brain that evaluate dominance from the shape of the face. He looks the part for a leadership role. The punishment won't feel just unless its intensity matches the crime, just like you can match the loudness of a sound to the brightness of a light. This was a clear instance of a mental shotgun. He was asked whether he thought the company was financially sound, but he couldn't forget that he likes their product. Chapter 9 Answering an Easier Question A remarkable aspect of your mental life is that you are rarely stumped. True, you occasionally face a question such as, 17 times 24 equals? To which no answer comes immediately to mind. But these dumbfounded moments are rare. The normal state of your mind is that you have intuitive feelings and opinions about almost everything that comes your way. You like or dislike people long before you know much about them. You trust or distrust strangers without knowing why you feel that an enterprise is bound to succeed without analyzing it. Whether you state them or not, you often have answers to questions that you do not completely understand, relying on evidence that you can neither explain nor defend. Substituting Questions I propose a simple account of how we generate intuitive opinions on complex matters. If a satisfactory answer to a hard question is not found quickly, System 1 will find a related question that is easier and will answer it. I call the operation of answering one question in place of another substitution. I also adopt the following terms. The target question is the assessment you intend to produce. The heuristic question is the simpler question that you answer instead. The technical definition of heuristic is a simple procedure that helps find adequate, though often imperfect, answers to difficult questions. The word comes from the same root as eureka. The idea of substitution came up early in my work with Amos, and it was the core of what became the heuristics and biases approach. We asked ourselves how people managed to make judgments of probability without knowing precisely what probability is. We concluded that people must somehow simplify that impossible task, and we set out to find how they do it. Our answer was that when called upon to judge probability, people actually judge something else, and believe they have judged probability. System 1 often makes this move when faced with difficult target questions if the answer to a related and easier heuristic question comes readily to mind. Substituting one question for another can be a good strategy for solving difficult problems, and George Polya included substitution in his classic How to Solve It. If you can't solve a problem, then there is an easier problem you can solve. Find it. Puglia's heuristics are strategic procedures that are deliberately implemented by System 2. But the heuristics that I discuss in this chapter are not chosen. They are a consequence of the mental shotgun, the imprecise control we have over targeting our responses to questions. Consider the target questions you are about to hear. These are difficult questions, and before you can produce a reasoned answer to any of them, you must deal with other difficult issues. What is the meaning of happiness? What are the likely political developments in the next six months? What are the standard sentences for other financial crimes? How strong is the competition that the candidate faces? What other environmental or other causes should be considered? Dealing with these questions seriously is completely impractical. But you are not limited to perfectly reasoned answers to questions. There is a heuristic alternative to careful reasoning, which sometimes works fairly well and sometimes leads to serious errors. Target Question How much would you contribute to save an endangered species? Heuristic Question How much emotion do I feel when I think of dying dolphins? Target question. How happy are you with your life these days? Heuristic question. What is my mood right now? Target question. How popular will the president be six months from now? Heuristic question. How popular is the president right now? Target question. How should financial advisors who prey on the elderly be punished? Heuristic question. How much anger do I feel when I think of financial predators? Target question. This woman is running for the primary. How far will she go in politics? Heuristic question. Does this woman look like a political winner? The mental shotgun makes it easy to generate quick answers to difficult questions without imposing much hard work on your lazy system, too. The heuristic counterpart of each of the target questions is very likely to be evoked and very easily answered. Your feelings about dolphins and financial crooks, your current mood, your impressions of the political skill of the primary candidate, or the current standing of the president will readily come to mind. The heuristic questions provide an off-the-shelf answer to each of the difficult target questions. Something is still missing from this story. The answers need to be fitted to the original questions. For example, my feelings about dying dolphins must be expressed in dollars. Another capability of System 1, intensity matching, is available to solve that problem. Recall that both feelings and contribution dollars are intensity scales. I can feel more or less strongly about dolphins, and there is a contribution that matches the intensity of my feelings. The dollar amount that will come to mind is the matching amount. Similar intensity matches are possible for all the questions. For example, the political skills of a candidate can range from pathetic to extraordinarily impressive, and the scale of political success can range from the low of, she will be defeated in the primary, to a high of, she will someday be president of the United States. The automatic processes of the mental shotgun and intensity matching often make available one or more answers to easy questions that could be mapped onto the target question. On some occasions, substitution will occur and a heuristic answer will be endorsed by System 2. Of course, System 2 has the opportunity to reject this intuitive answer or to modify it by incorporating other information. However, a lazy system too often follows the path of least effort and endorses a heuristic answer without much scrutiny of whether it is truly appropriate. You will not be stumped, you will not have to work very hard, and you may not even notice that you did not answer the question you were asked. Furthermore, you may not realize that the target question was difficult because an intuitive answer to it came readily to mind. The 3D Heuristic Have a look at the picture of the three men in figure 9 on the PDF and answer the question that follows. Is the figure on the right larger than the figure on the left? The obvious answer comes quickly to mind. The figure on the right is larger. If you take a ruler to the two figures, however, you will discover that in fact the figures are exactly the same size. Your impression of their relative size is dominated by a powerful illusion, which neatly illustrates the process of substitution. The corridor in which the figures are seen is drawn in perspective and appears to go into the depth plane. Your perceptual system automatically interprets the picture as a three-dimensional scene, not as an image printed on a flat paper surface. In the 3D interpretation, the person on the right is both much farther away and much larger than the person on the left. For most of us, this impression of 3D size is overwhelming. Only visual artists and experienced photographers have developed the skill of seeing the drawing as an object on the page. For the rest of us, substitution occurs. The dominant impression of 3D size dictates the judgment of 2D size. The illusion is due to a 3D heuristic. What happens here is a true illusion, not a misunderstanding of the question. You knew that the question about the size of the figures in the picture. If you had been asked to estimate the size of the figures, we know from experiments that your answer would have been in inches, not feet. You were not confused about the question, but you were influenced by the answer to a question that you were not asked. How tall are the three people? The essential step in the heuristic, the substitution of three-dimensional for two-dimensional size, occurred automatically. The picture contains cues that suggest a 3D interpretation. These cues are irrelevant to the task at hand, the judgment of size of the figure, and you should have ignored them, but you could not. The bias associated with the heuristic is that objects that appear to be more distant also appear to be larger. As this example illustrates, A judgment that is based on substitution will inevitably be biased in predictable ways. In this case, it happens so deep in the perceptual system that you simply cannot help it. The Mood Heuristic for Happiness A survey of German students is one of the best examples of substitution the survey that the young participants completed included the following two questions. How happy are you these days? How many dates did you have last month? The experimenters were interested in the correlation between the two answers. Would the students who reported many dates say that they were happier than those with fewer dates? Surprisingly, no. The correlation between the answers was about zero. Evidently, dating was not what came first to the students' minds when they were asked to assess their happiness. Another group of students saw the same two questions but in reverse order. How many dates did you have last month? How happy are you these days? The results this time were completely different. In this sequence, the correlation between the number of dates and reported happiness was about as high as correlations between psychological measures can get. What happened? The explanation is straightforward, and it is a good example of substitution. Dating was apparently not the center of these students' life. In the first survey, happiness and dating were uncorrelated. But when they were asked to think about their romantic life, they certainly had an emotional reaction. The students who had many dates were reminded of a happy aspect of their life, while those who had none were reminded of loneliness and rejection. The emotion aroused by the dating question was still on everyone's mind when the query about general happiness came up. The psychology of what happened is precisely analogous to the psychology of the size illusion in figure nine. Happiness these days is not a natural or an easy assessment. A good answer requires a fair amount of thinking. However, the students who had just been asked about their dating did not need to think hard because they already had in their mind an answer to a related question. How happy they were with their love life. They substituted the question to which they had a ready-made answer for the question they were asked. Here again, as we did for the illusion, we can ask, are the students confused? Do they really think that the two questions, the one they were asked and the one they answer, are synonymous? Of course not. The students do not temporarily lose their ability to distinguish romantic life from life as a whole. If asked about the two concepts, they would say they are different. But they were not asked whether the concepts are different. They were asked how happy they were, and System 1 has a ready answer. Dating is not unique. The same pattern is found if a question about the student's relations with their parents or about their finances immediately precedes the question about general happiness. In both cases, satisfaction in the particular domain dominates happiness reports. Any emotionally significant question that alters a person's mood will have the same effect. What you see is all there is. The present state of mind looms very large when people evaluate their happiness. The Affect Heuristic The dominance of conclusions over arguments is most pronounced where emotions are involved. The psychologist Paul Slovic has proposed an affect heuristic in which people let their likes and dislikes determine their beliefs about the world. Your political preference determines the arguments that you find compelling. If you like the current health policy, you believe its benefits are substantial and its costs more manageable than the costs of alternatives. If you are a hawk in your attitude to other nations, you probably think they are relatively weak and likely to submit to your country's will. If you are a dove, you probably think they are strong and will not be easily coerced. Your emotional attitude to such things as irradiated food, red meat, nuclear power, tattoos, or motorcycles drives your beliefs about their benefits and their risks. If you dislike any of these things, you probably believe that its risks are high and its benefits negligible. The primacy of conclusions does not mean that your mind is completely closed and that your opinions are wholly immune to information and sensible reasoning. Your beliefs, and even your emotional attitude may change at least a little when you learn that the risk of an activity you disliked is smaller than you thought. However, the information about lower risks will also change your view of the benefits for the better, even if nothing was said about benefits in the information you received. We see here a new side of the personality of System 2. Until now, I have mostly described it as a more or less acquiescent monitor, which allows considerable leeway to System 1. I have also presented System 2 as active in deliberate memory search, complex computations, comparisons, planning, and choice. In the bat-and-ball problem, and in many other examples of the interplay between the two systems, it appeared that System 2 is ultimately in charge with the ability to resist the suggestions of System 1, slow things down, and impose logical analysis. Self-criticism is one of the functions of System 2. In the context of attitudes, however, System 2 is more of an apologist for the emotions of System 1 than a critic of those emotions, an endorser rather than an enforcer. Its search for information and arguments is mostly constrained to information that is consistent with existing beliefs, not with an intention to examine them. An active, coherent-seeking System 1 suggests solutions to an undemanding System 2. Speaking of Substitution and Heuristics Do we still remember the question we are trying to answer, or have we substituted an easier one? The question we face is whether this candidate can succeed. The question we seem to answer is whether she interviews well. Let's not substitute. He likes the project, so he thinks its costs are low and its benefits are high. Nice example of the affect heuristic. We are using last year's performance as a heuristic to predict the value of the firm several years from now. Is this heuristic good enough? What other information do we need? Following is a list of features and activities that have been attributed to System 1. Each of the active sentences replaces a statement, technically more accurate but harder to understand, to the effect that a mental event occurs automatically and fast. My hope is that the list of traits will help you develop an intuitive sense of the personality of the fictitious System 1. As it happens with other characters you know, you will have hunches about what System 1 would do under different circumstances, and most of your hunches will be correct. Characteristics of System 1 Generates impressions, feelings, and inclinations. When endorsed by System 2, these become beliefs, attitudes, and intentions. Operates automatically and quickly, with little or no effort, and no sense of voluntary control. Can be programmed by System 2 to mobilize attention when a particular pattern is detected. Search Executes skilled responses and generates skilled intuitions after adequate training. Creates a coherent pattern of activated ideas in associative memory. Links a sense of cognitive ease to illusions of truth, pleasant feelings, and reduced vigilance. Distinguishes the surprising from the normal infers and invents causes and intentions, neglects ambiguity and suppresses doubt, is biased to believe and confirm, exaggerates emotional consistency, halo effect, focuses on existing evidence and ignores absent evidence, what you see is all there is, Generates a limited set of basic assessments. Represents sets by norms and prototypes. Does not integrate. Matches intensities across scales. For example, size to loudness. Computes more than intended. Mental shotgun. Sometimes substitutes an easier question for a difficult one. Heuristics. Is more sensitive to changes than to states. Prospect theory. Overweights low probabilities. Shows diminishing sensitivity to quantity. Psychophysics. Responds more strongly to losses than to gains. Loss aversion. Frames decision problems narrowly, in isolation from one another. Part 2. Heuristics and Biases. Chapter 10. The Law of Small Numbers. A study of the incidence of kidney cancer in the 3,141 counties of the United States reveals a remarkable pattern. The counties in which the incidence of kidney cancer is lowest are mostly rural, sparsely populated, and located in traditionally Republican states in the Midwest, the South, and the West. What do you make of this? Your mind has been very active in the last few seconds, and it was mainly a System 2 operation. You deliberately searched memory and formulated hypotheses. Some effort was involved, your pupils dilated, and your heart rate increased measurably but System 1 was not idle. The operation of System 2 depended on the facts and suggestions retrieved from associative memory. You probably rejected the idea that Republican politics provide protection against kidney cancer. Very likely, you ended up focusing on the fact that the counties with low incidence of cancer are mostly rural. The witty statisticians Howard Wainer and Harris Zwirling, from whom I learned this example, commented, It is both easy and tempting to infer that their low cancer rates are directly due to the clean living of the rural lifestyle. No air pollution, no water pollution, access to fresh food without additives. This makes perfect sense. Now, consider the counties in which the incidence of kidney cancer is highest. These ailing counties tend to be mostly rural, sparsely populated, and located in traditionally Republican states in the Midwest, the South, and the West. Tongue-in-cheek, Weiner and Zwirling comment, It is easy to infer that their high cancer rates might be directly due to the poverty of the rural lifestyle no access to good medical care, a high-fat diet, and too much alcohol, too much tobacco. Something is wrong, of course. The rural lifestyle cannot explain both very high and very low incidence of kidney cancer. The key factor is not that the counties were rural or predominantly Republican. It is that rural counties have small populations, And the main lesson to be learned is not about epidemiology. It is about the difficult relationship between our mind and statistics. System 1 is highly adept in one form of thinking. It automatically and effortlessly identifies causal connections between events, sometimes even when the connection is spurious. When told about the high incidence counties, you immediately assumed that these counties are different from other counties for a reason, that there must be a cause that explains this difference. As we shall see, however, System 1 is inept when faced with merely statistical facts, which change the probability of outcomes but do not cause them to happen. A random event, by definition, does not lend itself to explanation— But collections of random events do behave in a highly regular fashion. Imagine a large urn filled with marbles. Half the marbles are red, half are white. Next, imagine a very patient person, or a robot, who blindly draws four marbles from the urn, records the number of red balls in the sample, throws the balls back into the urn, and then does it all again, many times. If you summarize the results, you will find that the outcome 2 red, 2 white occurs almost exactly six times as often as the outcome 4 red or 4 white. This relationship is a mathematical fact. You can predict the outcome of repeated sampling from an urn just as confidently as you can predict what will happen if you hit an egg with a hammer you cannot predict every detail of how the shell will shatter, but you can be sure of the general idea. There is a difference. The satisfying sense of causation that you experience when thinking of a hammer hitting an egg is altogether absent when you think about sampling. A related statistical fact is relevant to the cancer example. From the same urn, two very patient marble counters take turns. Jack draws four marbles on each trial. Jill draws seven. They both record each time they observe a homogeneous sample, all white or all red. If they go on long enough, Jack will observe such extreme outcomes more often than Jill by a factor of eight. The expected percentages are 12.5 percent, and 1.56 percent. Again, no hammer, no causation, but a mathematical fact. Samples of four marbles yield extreme results more often than samples of seven marbles do. Now imagine the population of the United States as marbles in a giant urn. Some marbles are marked KC for kidney cancer you draw samples of marbles and populate each county in turn. Rural counties are smaller than other counties. Just as in the game of Jack and Jill, extreme outcomes, very high and or very low cancer rates, are most likely to be found in sparsely populated counties. This is all there is to the story. We started from a fact that calls for a cause, The incidence of kidney cancer varies widely across counties, and the differences are systematic. The explanation I offered is statistical. Extreme outcomes, both high and low, are more likely to be found in small than in large counties. This explanation is not causal. The small population of a county neither causes nor prevents cancer. It merely allows the incidence of cancer to be much higher or much lower than it is in the larger population. The deeper truth is that there is nothing to explain. The incidence of cancer is not truly lower or higher than normal in a county with a small population. It just appears to be so in a particular year because of an accident of sampling. If we repeat the analysis next year, we will observe the same general pattern of extreme results in the small counties, but the counties where cancer was common last year will not necessarily have a high incidence this year. If this is the case, the differences between large and small counties do not really count as facts. They are what scientists call artifacts observations that are produced entirely by some aspect of the method of research, in this case, by differences in sample size. The story I have told may have surprised you, but it was not a revelation. You have long known that the results of large samples deserve more trust than smaller samples, and even people who are innocent of statistical knowledge have heard about this law of large numbers. But knowing is not a yes-no affair, and you may find that the following statements apply to you. The feature, sparsely populated, did not immediately stand out as relevant when you read the epidemiological story. You were at least mildly surprised by the size of the difference between samples of four and samples of seven. Even now, you must exert some mental effort to see that the following two statements mean exactly the same thing. Large samples are more precise than small samples. Small samples yield extreme results more often than large samples do. The first statement has a clear ring of truth, but until the second version makes intuitive sense, you have not truly understood the first. The bottom line Yes, you did know that the results of large samples are more precise, but you may now realize that you did not know it very well. You are not alone. The first study that Amos and I did together showed that even sophisticated researchers have poor intuitions and a wobbly understanding of sampling effects. The Law of Small Numbers My collaboration with Amos in the early 1970s began with a discussion of the claim that people who have had no training in statistics are good intuitive statisticians. He told my seminar and me of researchers at the University of Michigan who were generally optimistic about intuitive statistics. I had strong feelings about that claim, which I took personally. I had recently discovered that I was not a good intuitive statistician, and I did not believe that I was worse than others. For a research psychologist, sampling variation is not a curiosity. It is a nuisance and a costly obstacle, which turns the undertaking of every research project into a gamble. Suppose that you wish to confirm the hypothesis that the vocabulary of the average six-year-old girl is larger than the vocabulary of an average boy of the same age. The hypothesis is true in the population. The average vocabulary of girls is indeed larger. Girls and boys vary a great deal, however, and by the luck of the draw, you could select a sample in which the difference is inconclusive, or even one in which boys actually score higher. If you are the researcher, this outcome is costly to you because you have wasted time and effort, and failed to confirm a hypothesis that was in fact true. Using a sufficiently large sample is the only way to reduce the risk. Researchers who pick too small a sample leave themselves at the mercy of sampling luck. The risk of error can be estimated for any given sample size, by a fairly simple procedure. Traditionally, however, psychologists do not use calculations to decide on a sample size. They use their judgment, which is commonly flawed. An article I had read shortly before the debate with Amos demonstrated the mistake that researchers made—they still do—by a dramatic observation. The author pointed out that psychologists commonly chose samples so small that they exposed themselves to a 50% risk of failing to confirm their true hypotheses. No researcher in his right mind would accept such a risk. A plausible explanation was that psychologists' decisions about sample size reflected prevalent intuitive misconceptions of the extent of sampling variation. The article shocked me, because it explained some troubles I had had in my own research. Like most research psychologists, I had routinely chosen samples that were too small and had often obtained results that made no sense. Now I knew why. The odd results were actually artifacts of my research method. My mistake was particularly embarrassing because I taught statistics and knew how to compute the sample size that would reduce the risk of failure to an acceptable level. But I had never chosen a sample size by computation. Like my colleagues, I had trusted tradition and my intuition in planning my experiments, and had never thought seriously about the issue. When Amos visited the seminar, I had already reached the conclusion that my intuitions were deficient, and in the course of the seminar we quickly agreed that the Michigan optimists were wrong. Amos and I set out to examine whether I was the only fool, or a member of a majority of fools, by testing whether researchers selected for mathematical expertise would make similar mistakes. We developed a questionnaire that described realistic research situations, including replications of successful experiments. It asked the researchers to choose sample sizes, to assess the risks of failure to which their decisions exposed them, and to provide advice to hypothetical graduate students planning their research. Amos collected the responses of a group of sophisticated participants, including authors of two statistical textbooks, at a meeting of the Society of Mathematical Psychology the results were straightforward. I was not the only fool. Every one of the mistakes I had made was shared by a large majority of our respondents. It was evident that even the experts paid insufficient attention to sample size. Amos and I called our first joint article Belief in the Law of Small Numbers. We explained, tongue-in-cheek, that intuitions about random sampling appear to satisfy the law of small numbers, which asserts that the law of large numbers applies to small numbers as well. We also included a strongly worded recommendation that researchers regard their statistical intuitions with proper suspicion and replace impression formation by computation whenever possible. A BIAS OF CONFIDENCE OVER DOUBT In a telephone poll of 300 seniors, 60% support the president. If you had to summarize the message of this sentence in exactly three words, what would they be? Almost certainly you would choose, elderly support president. These words provide the gist of the story. The omitted details of the poll, that it was done on the phone with a sample of three hundred, are of no interest in themselves, they provide background information that attracts little attention. Your summary would be the same if the sample size had been different. Of course, a completely absurd number would draw your attention. A telephone poll of six, or sixty million, elderly voters Unless you are professional, however, you may not react very differently to a sample of 150 and to a sample of 3,000. That is the meaning of the statement that people are not adequately sensitive to sample size. The message about the poll contains information of two kinds, the story and the source of the story. Naturally, you focus on the story rather than on the reliability of the results. When the reliability is obviously low, however, the message will be discredited. If you are told that a partisan group has conducted a flawed and biased poll to show that the elderly support the president, you will of course reject the findings of the poll and they will not become part of what you believe. Instead, The partisan poll, and its false results, will become a new story about political lies. You can choose to disbelieve a message in such clear-cut cases, but do you discriminate sufficiently between I read in the New York Times and I heard at the water cooler Can your system one distinguish degrees of belief? The principle of what you see is all there is suggests that it cannot. As I described earlier, System 1 is not prone to doubt. It suppresses ambiguity and spontaneously constructs stories that are as coherent as possible. Unless the message is immediately negated, the associations that it evokes will spread as if the message were true. System two is capable of doubt, because it can maintain incompatible possibilities at the same time. However, sustaining doubt is harder work than sliding into certainty. The law of small numbers is a manifestation of a general bias that favors certainty over doubt, which will turn up in many guises in following chapters. The strong bias toward believing that small samples closely resemble the population from which they are drawn is also part of a larger story. We are prone to exaggerate the consistency and coherence of what we see. The exaggerated faith of researchers in what can be learned from a few observations is closely related to the halo effect, the sense we often get that we know and understand a person about whom we actually know very little. System 1 runs ahead of the facts in constructing a rich image on the basis of scraps of evidence. A machine for jumping to conclusions will act as if it believed in the law of small numbers. More generally, it will produce a representation of reality that makes too much sense cause and chance. The associative machinery seeks causes. The difficulty we have with statistical regularities is that they call for a different approach. Instead of focusing on how the event at hand came to be, the statistical view relates it to what could have happened instead. Nothing in particular caused it to be what it is, chance selected it from among its alternatives our predilection for causal thinking exposes us to serious mistakes in evaluating the randomness of truly random events for an example take the sex of six babies born in sequence at a hospital the sequence of boys and girls is obviously random the events are independent of each other and the number of boys and girls who were born in the hospital in the last few hours has no effect whatsoever on the sex of the next baby. Now consider three possible sequences. B-B-B, G-G-G, 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 G-G, B-G, B-B-B, G-B. Are the sequences equally likely? The intuitive answer, of course not, is false. Because the events are independent, and because the outcomes B and G are approximately equally likely, then any possible sequence of six births is as likely as any other. Even now that you know this conclusion is true, it remains counterintuitive, because only the third sequence appears random. As expected, b g b b g b is judged much more likely than the other two sequences we are pattern seekers believers in a coherent world in which regularities such as a sequence of six girls appear not by accident but as a result of mechanical causality or of someone's intention we do not expect to see regularity produced by a random process and when we detect what appears to be a rule, we quickly reject the idea that the process is truly random. Random processes produce many sequences that convince people that the process is not random after all. You can see why assuming causality could have had evolutionary advantages. It is part of the general vigilance that we have inherited from ancestors we are automatically on the lookout for the possibility that the environment has changed. Lions may appear on the plane at random times, but it would be safer to notice and respond to an apparent increase in the rate of appearance of prides of lions, even if it is actually due to the fluctuations of a random process. The widespread misunderstanding of randomness sometimes has significant consequences, In our article on representativeness, Amos and I cited the statistician William Feller, who illustrated the ease with which people see patterns where none exists. During the intensive rocket bombing of London in World War II, it was generally believed that the bombing could not be random because a map of the hits revealed conspicuous gaps. Some suspected that German spies were located in the unharmed areas. A careful statistical analysis revealed that the distribution of hits was typical of a random process, and typical as well in evoking a strong impression that it was not random. To the untrained eye, Feller remarks, randomness appears as regularity or tendency to cluster. I soon had an occasion to apply what I had learned from Feller. The Yom Kippur War broke out in 1973, and my only significant contribution to the war effort was to advise high officers in the Israeli Air Force to stop an investigation. The air war initially went quite badly for Israel because of the unexpectedly good performance of Egyptian ground-to-air missiles. Losses were high, and they appeared to be unevenly distributed. I was told of two squadrons flying from the same base one of which had lost four planes, while the other had lost none. An inquiry was initiated, in the hope of learning what it was that the unfortunate squadron was doing wrong. There was no prior reason to believe that one of the squadrons was more effective than the other, and no operational differences were found, but of course, the lives of the pilots differed in many random ways, including, as I recall, how often they went home between missions, and something about the conduct of debriefings. My advice was that the command should accept that the different outcomes were due to blind luck, and that the interviewing of the pilots should stop. I reasoned that luck was the most likely answer, that a random search for a non-obvious cause was hopeless, and that in the meantime, the pilots in the squadron that had sustained losses did not need the extra burden of being made to feel that they and their dead friends were at fault. Some years later, Amos and his students Tom Gilovich and Robert Vallone caused a stir with their study of misperceptions of randomness in basketball. The fact that players occasionally acquire a hot hand is generally accepted by players, coaches, and fans the inference is irresistible. A player sinks three or four baskets in a row, and you cannot help forming the causal judgment that this player is now hot, with a temporarily increased propensity to score. Players on both teams adapt to this judgment. Teammates are more likely to pass to the hot scorer, and the defense is more likely to double-team. Analysis of thousands of sequences of shots led to a disappointing conclusion. There is no such thing as a hot hand in professional basketball, either in shooting from the field or scoring from the foul line. Of course, some players are more accurate than others, but the sequence of successes and missed shots satisfies all tests of randomness. The hot hand is entirely in the eye of the beholders, who are consistently too quick to perceive order and causality in randomness. The hot hand is a massive and widespread cognitive illusion. The public reaction to this research is part of the story. The finding was picked up by the press because of its surprising conclusion, and the general response was disbelief. When the celebrated coach of the Boston Celtics, Red Auerbach, heard of Gilovich and his study, he responded, who is this guy? So he makes a study. I couldn't care less. The tendency to see patterns in randomness is overwhelming, certainly more impressive than a guy making a study. The illusion of pattern affects our lives in many ways off the basketball court. How many good years should you wait before concluding that an investment advisor is unusually skilled? How many successful acquisitions should be needed for a board of directors to believe that the CEO has extraordinary flair for such deals? The simple answer to these questions is that if you follow your intuition, you will more often than not err by misclassifying a random event as systematic. We are far too willing to reject the belief that much of what we see in life is random. I began this chapter with the example of cancer incidents across the United States. The example appears in a book intended for statistics teachers, but I learned about it from an amusing article by the two statisticians I quoted earlier, Howard Weiner and Harris Zwirling. Their essay focused on a large investment, some $1.7 billion, which the Gates Foundation made to follow up intriguing findings on the characteristics of the most successful schools. Many researchers have sought the secret of successful education by identifying the most successful schools in the hope of discovering what distinguishes them from others. One of the conclusions of this research is that the most successful schools, on average, are small. In a survey of 1,662 schools in Pennsylvania, for instance, six of the top 50 were small, which is an overrepresentation by a factor of four. These data encouraged the Gates Foundation to make a substantial investment in the creation of small schools, sometimes by splitting large schools into smaller units. At least half a dozen other prominent institutions, such as the Annenberg Foundation and the Pew Charitable Trust, joined the effort, as did the U.S. Department of Education's Smaller Learning Communities Program. This probably makes intuitive sense to you, It is easy to construct a causal story that explains how small schools are able to provide superior education and thus produce high-achieving scholars by giving them more personal attention and encouragement than they could get in larger schools. Unfortunately, the causal analysis is pointless because the facts are wrong. If the statisticians who reported to the Gates Foundation had asked about the characteristics of the worst schools, they would have found that bad schools also tend to be smaller than average. The truth is that small schools are not better on average, they are simply more variable. If anything, say Weiner and Zwirling, large schools tend to produce better results especially in higher grades where a variety of curricular options is valuable. Thanks to recent advances in cognitive psychology, we can now see clearly what Amos and I could only glimpse. The law of small numbers is part of two larger stories about the workings of the mind. The exaggerated faith in small samples is only one example of a more general illusion we pay more attention to the content of messages than to information about their reliability, and as a result, end up with a view of the world around us that is simpler and more coherent than the data justify. Jumping to conclusions is a safer sport in the world of our imagination than it is in reality. Statistics produce many observations that appear to beg For causal explanations, but do not lend themselves to such explanations. Many facts of the world are due to chance, including accidents of sampling. Causal explanations of chance events are inevitably wrong. Speaking of the Law of Small Numbers Yes, the studio has had three successful films since the new CEO took over, but it is too early to declare that he has a hot hand. I won't believe that the new trader is a genius before consulting a statistician who could estimate the likelihood of his streak being a chance event. The sample of observations is too small to make any inferences. Let's not follow the law of small numbers. I plan to keep the results of the experiment secret, until we have a sufficiently large sample. Otherwise, we will face pressure to reach a conclusion prematurely.